Well, the, the Lord's really stirred me uh, for some time, actually, to look at some basic things about God, what we might call the doctrine of God. And uh, I did originally think I might look at this on a, a, an encounter meeting, but the encounter meetings are different. I feel they're... There's some teaching. I feel it needs to be scope for others to bring the word of God. I'm so thrilled we've got that happening. And uh, I I actually felt God draw me back to say, no, look at it on Sunday mornings. So this is the beginning of a a bit of a series, I'm not sure how long, uh, on on our awesome God. Looking at God's attributes, at his character, at his qualities. And the first one today I want to call the God who is there which is a a pick ripped off, really, from a title of a book by Francis Schaeffer, written many, many years ago. But it's just a statement anyway. The God who is there. That's what I want to talk about this morning. Now, why have I sort of come to this? Well, I mean, I feel God leads me to these things, but there are some things that make sense to me, that that provoke, and and God speaks to me out of them, and that's how you sort of come to to, uh, feel this is the right thing to do. I think one of them, one big thing, is the culture we live in in modern Britain. We live in a culture which is increasingly uh, atheistic. I'm not sure how much that's deep into people, but there is a, a, a broadly a, a quite a, a sort of um, renaissance of a sort of new atheism. People like, uh, obviously, Richard Dawkins with his book The God Delusion, which is so popular. Pullman, whose books, although they're so-called children's books, have got a definite atheistic agenda, which he unashamedly uh, talks about when you read articles by him. But generally, our culture and our media would, if not be atheistic, would be agnostic or pretty, uh, perhaps, critical of a belief in one God and creator. Uh, evolutionary humanism is behind a lot around us. Now, we live with that. All of us in this room, we live in that culture. We have to talk to people who assume that evolution has disproved God or assume that Dawkins has got it all right. And if most of our, apparently last year or the year before, the most popular book for an MP to take for the summer break was The God Delusion. So if those who govern us look after us think that is a great thing to look at and read, it must be okay. We live with that. We have to fight with that, if you like. And then you could add into that the confusion that comes from a pluralistic approach, that all roads lead to God. And if there is a God, it's so vague and general that any religion is as good as any other. You pick and choose the bits you like from all of them. And we certainly do have that as a sort of boiled down popular culture around us. And if you talk to people, you will find that. When I was travelling to Catford the other day, I was on a very crowded train to London. And we were all standing, and I was standing by some bikes And I was standing next to a very pleasant lady who was going to London uh, to lecture on mental health. And we talked to each other. I told her what I did, told her where I was going, which was to a church leaders conference. So we got talking, got talking about mental health, got talking about the state of society. We talked for the whole hour on the train. John was sitting in his first class compartment, having given me a brotherly wave on the platform. Bless him. God bless him. Prosper you, brother. Uh, And as I was standing uh, cheek to jowl with these people with bikes swaying and clicking into me, I was fine, John. I didn't really envy you at all. Not a trace entered me. But but God used it. I don't think I did actually envy you, to be fair. I'm not mocking. But I did think at the very beginning, cool, all right for him. I did think that for a few moments, just a second. But, But actually, 
um, it was very fruitful talking to this lady. But it's quite obvious, nice, very nice, caring lady, that she probably, and I'm not you know, quoting her, would have had that last view that, well, surely don't all got, roads lead to God and isn't, you know, and it, it's all, I mean, I, I, you know, we kept it very general, had a, quite a stimulating conversation, but, uh, but, but actual fact, it's quite obvious what the average person sort of thinks as you talk to them. And so that's the culture we're in. Then I could add to that a second reason for taking this subject, which is much, to do, much more to do with us, literally where we're at as Winchester Family Church, which is the desire to stimulate worship and praise of our great God. That we should be confident about the Bible. We should be confident about our God. We should be strong in faith. Not necessarily aggressive to people like that dear lady on the train, but also not on the back foot at all. And we, we, we know what we believe, and we know the truth. Now, we also worship this great God, and I believe looking at God and and understanding him stimulates worship. And we're looking to see the glory of God and the presence of God amongst us, aren't we? And we are seeing it, but we're going to see it more if we fuel the fire with meditating on who God is. We need to put fuel on the fire. This great God we worship. So that's what we're going to do as we look at this subject. And this morning I want to read, and you could, if you've got a Bible, turn to it, from 1, uh, sorry, yeah, Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 and verses 18 to 25 as we start looking at this subject. The God who is there under the title, our awesome God. Right, Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse." For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over to to the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. It's amazing, it's exciting, it's uplifting to look at God and the subject of God. Jim Packer writes this, I think, at the beginning of his book, Knowing God. Knowing God is crucially important for the living of our lives. The world becomes a strange, mad, painful place, and life in it a disappointing and unpleasant business for those who do not know about God. Now, the Bible tells us quite clearly, it's here in Romans 1, verse 21, that Even those who are unbelievers know God to some degree. That's quite startling. For although they knew God, it says in verse 21. It's it's saying that actually God is not so hard to work out and know. It's really, the Bible is saying that everybody on the planet 
has a general deep sense that God exists and that they're his creatures. However, they don't honour him. They don't thank him. In fact, the Bible goes on to say in those verses and elsewhere that I read to you this morning that that people actively and willfully reject the truth of God's existence and the broad revelation of his character that they could see through natural things. They deliberately reject it. That is the approach the Bible says. It recognises that people do deliberately deny the existence of God. The Bible knows about atheism. It is not a modern product. In fact, the Bible has some pretty straight things to say about atheism. Here's one, Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. There were people 4,000 years ago saying there is no God. It's not a new idea. God's not biting his nails. All they've got so clever now, they're saying, I don't exist. They've been saying that for a long time, some people. And the Bible says, the fool says there is no God. And then there's another category, which is probably broader, which is people that act as though there is no God. Almost in practice, if you like, if not in their thinking. And the Bible's fully aware of them as well. Psalm 10, verses 3 to 4, talks about the wicked person like this. He boasts of the cravings of his heart. He blesses the greedy and reviles the Lord. In his pride, the wicked does not seek him, that's God. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. Now that is a very common position. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. But in these verses, the Bible is saying straight out, in your face, the problem is primarily not intellectual with anybody. The problem is a moral problem. Atheism, perhaps in its intellectual sort of hard form, or atheism or in its sort of casual, common, like I live as though there's no God, they are both a moral problem. Actually, to be atheistic or even nearly atheistic, if you like, in your attitude, is irrational. It's not an intellectually strong position. It's actually something that comes out of a moral problem, which the Bible would describe as sin. Things like pride and other things. And it's clear there in Psalm and many other places. The fact is, there is abundant evidence that God exists. Abundant evidence. For example, Romans 1.20 tells us this. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Being understood from what has been made so that men, men and women, men generically, are without excuse. The Bible would say, and I would agree, that there is abundant evidence for a God. For those who've got eyes to see and the ability to evaluate correctly what's around them. Every insect, every leaf, every star cries out, look at me and learn about the creator. Everything. If our hearts and minds were not blinded by sin, it would be impossible to look at something like this. An ordinary leaf from an ordinary tree It would be impossible to look at that and say, no one made that, it just happened. 
That would be considered the strong, correct position in our society. But but for sin, it is the exact opposite to what common sense would teach you. You would not look at that and say, no one made that, it just happened. I went out, when I was praying over and preparing my notes this morning, or going over my notes, I just went out in the garden in 30 seconds and picked this off a tree. And just made me look at it. It's beautiful. Have you ever looked at a leaf? Have you looked at one recently? It's beautiful. It's intricately made. It's a beautiful thing. Beautiful piece of organic engineering. Just in its appearance. Fine and beautiful. And the strange thing is that every one of those flowering cherries will have a similar leaf. And yet each leaf will probably be unique. I don't know, but I suspect it is. But that's only the beginning of it. Have you ever heard of photosynthesis? Who knows what photosynthesis is? Few of you do, some of you... I only just do. It's going back a good few years to my O-level biology. There you go, O-levels. You don't even have those, do you? I'll tell you what an O-level is sometime. But, but what I do know is this beautiful thing, which actually was a brighter green when I picked the poor thing a couple of hours ago, was a beautiful green. It's a lovely colour. So it's aesthetically pleasing. It's fascinating to look at. But actually, it also draws in the carbon dioxide that you and I breathe out and would kill us uses it and gives out oxygen that you and I need to live. How lucky is that? Whoa, that's a stroke of luck, isn't it? Ended up doing that. It is amazing. It's amazing. You don't have to look far to see something wonderful in creation, to see the, the design and the intention behind everything around us. There are millions of things that speak of an all-wise, all-powerful, incredible creator. Millions of things. But above all, we as human beings, ourselves, in a broad sense, give ourselves strong evidence of a creator. Now I'm going to take a few minutes just to look at three things that are relevant to us. The first one is very broad, but it is relevant to us. Life. Life. Just life. Being alive. I've mentioned before a book that I read recently by a a man called Anthony Flew. And its title is, There is No God, and then the no is crossed out, and, and an A is scratched in over it. So there is a God. Now why this caught my attention, it says in the slightly, uh, sort of, journalistic blurb, how the world's most notorious atheist changed his mind. Well, it might be a bit overstating it because he's not today the world's most notorious atheist. But he was. When I was a student at university, Anthony Flew was the professor of philosophy at my university. And he was a very assertive, energetic, proselytizing atheist. And he would love to debate with Christians. And he did so in the university circuits and elsewhere. Wrote books on his atheism. Uh, from a philosophical point of view. And we as a Christian union used to put on debates between him and Professor Mackay, who was an outstanding Christian professor in a, in a research department, and they were enthralling debates. Um, and this man was right on the front foot with his atheism. But in, in recent years, he has come to believe there is a God. He's not become a Christian, he's open about that in here. But he would say he has responded to the evidence 
that modern science has thrown up. He said he's always been committed to trying to be fair-minded about the evidence and follow it where it leads. And he would say most of the modern discoveries of modern science over the last 30 years point towards a God. And a bottom line is this. How can life arise from non-life? And so I think on the screen will go a small quotation from this book, which I'm going to read to you. Flu states... The philosophical question that has not been answered in origin of life studies is this. How can a universe of mindless matter produce beings with intrinsic ends, self-replication capabilities and coded chemistry? And he would argue that DNA discoveries are amongst the most challenging to an atheist position. The very fact that they are so carefully coded Semantic. There's intelligence behind them. How on earth does this come from non-intelligence? In his book, he quotes from a man called Paul Davies, who I believe, though I know little about, is probably not in any way a, 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 a man who believes in God. I think he probably would take an agnostic position. He's a leading scientist. But he reflects, and this short quote comes from Davies, this, the problem of how meaningful or semantic information, he's writing about DNA, okay? The problem of how meaningful or semantic information can emerge spontaneously from a collection of mindless molecules subject to blind and purposeless forces presents a deep conceptual challenge. Now that, leave it up there for a moment, that is not being spoken by a Christian or even, to my knowledge, a man who believes in God, but an honest man. An honest, very intelligent, high-level scientist is saying, in the end, we have a big conceptual challenge. You bet you have. Where does all this come from? How do you get DNA coding? How do you get information that if we find a code, there's intelligence behind it, for goodness sake. And yet it comes from something with no intelligence. Mindless, blind, purposeless forces. You know, highly intelligent scientists trying to explain the origin of life resort to some amazing statements. I'm going to quote a sentence, not on the screen, from the Nobel Prize winning physiologist George Wald. Nobel Prize winning physiologist. He famously argued this. We choose to believe the impossible that life arose spontaneously by chance. That is an interesting statement. We choose to believe the impossible, that life arose spontaneously by chance. And because so much goes on today, I have got to take a bit of time. If I was in some countries in the world, you might not need to linger on this subject, but this is one of our battlefields, brothers and sisters. And so we do need to linger for a moment. So I'm not I'm really going to make an apology for reading a fairly, uh, nearly a page quote from here because I like the way it's written. And it is actually taking on Dawkins because it uses a quote from the God delusion. So I'm going to reinforce the point yet again. Please bear with me and listen. In writing in this book, there is a quotations from Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, and commentary on it, if you like. So here we go. Unfortunately, this is the book writing, of course, on the writer, on even the physico-chemical level, Dawkins' approach is manifestly inadequate or worse. 
Now we quote from Dawkins. But how does life get started, he asks. Quotation continues. The origin of life was the chemical event or series of events whereby the vital conditions for natural selection first came about. Once the vital ingredient, some kind of genetic molecule, is in place, true Darwinian selection can follow. How does this happen? We're continuing now with a quote of Dawkins. This is him. Scientists invoke the magic of large numbers. The beauty of the anthropic principle is that it tells us, against all intuition, that a chemical model need only predict that life will arise on one planet in a billion billion to give us a good and entirely satisfying explanation for the presence of life here. End of Dawkins quote. Writer continues. Given this type of reasoning, which is better described as an audacious exercise in superstition, anything we desire should exist somewhere if we just invoke the magic of large numbers. Unicorns or the elixir of youth, even if staggeringly improbable, are bound to occur against all intuition. The only requirement is a chemical model that need only predict these occurring in one planet in a billion billion. Quite correctly, exposing very false thinking. The atheist position is frankly a house of cards. It stands on nothing solid rationally and underneath. In fact, it flies in the face of evidence. Evidence that there is an intelligent creator who made life. It is not a product of blind, inanimate matter, chance and time. Let's move on. We're talking about us. Let's talk about personality. We're alive, praise God, so are many other things. That was about life. Personality is a little different. We're getting more close to our humanness, shall we say. Personality is our self-awareness, our reasoning, our emotions, our intelligence, our language, our ability to communicate with language, our creativity, our thoughts, our character, our individual personality. Every one of us is a unique individual personality. Now, the Bible states that God is personal, and God who is personal created man in his own image. God is personal, man and mankind is personal, men and women are personal. So biblical Christianity has an adequate, reasonable explanation of the source and meaning of human personality. When you believe in the God of the Bible, it makes good sense. However, the teaching of the humanistic, evolution-obsessed culture around us is this, that personality comes from the impersonal. The impersonal, plus time, plus chance, produces personality. Now, no one has presented that idea very coherently and well or demonstrated its feasibility, but it is widely held. Now, this is very important to understand how people think and the state our culture is in and the state people around us are in. Listen to me. The dysfunction between that wide belief taught in schools, widely believed in our media all the time, the dysfunction between that and what every individual personality experiences, their ability to communicate, to have hope, to have love, to have moral choice, to, to, to express their personality, the dysfunction 
leaves men and women in darkness and despair. No wonder our culture is full of such sort of anarchistic, dark despair, hopelessness in art and media. If you're taught that there's impersonal chance behind everything, but you've got a personality, you're looking for a reason, you're looking for a purpose, you're looking for values, you're just oozing with all it is to be a human being. That is a terrible clash. No wonder people go mad. No wonder people don't, they in despair, commit suicide, as indeed often leading artists do. Francis Schaeffer makes this point very powerfully in his book, The God Who Is There. And I'm going to read you a bit from that as well on this subject. Do listen carefully, please, because it's important to understand these things. Some of you haven't thought about it. Some of you may be just visiting. Some of you as Christians need to understand it and not be on the back foot in our day and age. So listen again. He's illustrating this point about the personality, the personal that we know coming from the impersonal. Mindless. Okay, here's a paragraph. Listen. Imagine that a universe existed which was made up only of liquids and solids and no free gases. A fish was swimming in this universe. This fish, quite naturally, was conformed to its environment so that it was able to go on living. But let us suppose that by blind chance, as the evolutionists would have us believe, this fish developed lungs as it continued swimming in this universe without any gases. Now this fish would no longer be able to function and fulfil its position as a fish. Would it then be higher or lower in its new state with lungs? It would be lower, for it would drown. In the same way, if mankind has been kicked up out of that which is only impersonal by chance, then those things that make him a man, hope of purpose and significance, love, motions of morality, rationality, beauty and verbal communication, they are all ultimately unfulfillable and thus meaningless. In such a situation, is man higher or lower? He would then be the lowest creature on the scale. The green moss on the rock is higher than he, for it can be fulfilled in the universe which exists. But if the world is what these men say it is, humanist with impersonal chance and all that, if the world is what these men say it is, then man, not only individually but as a race, being unfulfillable, is dead. In this situation, man should not walk on the grass but respect it, for the grass is higher than he is. That is right, because the moss and the grass fit in with a meaningless, impersonal world. And if we've been kicked up out of that to develop a personality, we're like a fish with lungs in a universe of liquid. We don't fit. What are we doing with personality and person when there is no such thing? When it's all no more intelligent than the wood I'm standing on. So what are we? No wonder we're in a mess. We'd be better off to be a lump of moss. Now that's why people talk like that today. But it's a filthy lie. There is a personal intelligent God. No wonder people end up screwballs. How do you live with that? No wonder you think, what's the purpose in life? Why should I obey immorality? Why on earth should you? I've always thought that with the atheist position. 
What on earth is the point of morally being a good person if this world is driven by blind chance and behind it is something no more intelligent than a lump of rock? What is the point? You just live, you either commit suicide or you go and live hard-nosed, selfish, hell for leather. Or you're a fool. What are you trying to preserve? The human race for what? For a meaningless blow-up of some star in 10 million years' time? What's the point of that? You just rip people off as best you can, murder people who get in your way, have sex with anything that moves, and just live hell for leather or you commit suicide. Well, that's it, isn't it? What's the point of it? Of course people don't live like that because they know that that isn't sane. But we're taught that. We're told that. And it's put forward. It's rubbish. Of course there is a creator. An intelligent, personal, relational creator. Let's finish off with religion. Don't finish it all together. Finish this section. Religion is found present in some form or other in all the great, in all the nations actually, not great, all the nations and tribes of the world. You know, in the 19th century, evolution-driven anthropologists were determined to prove that religion wasn't the natural state of affairs, that it had grown up later. And they tried really, really hard to find people who had no religion. And they virtually failed. And even when they thought they'd found someone with no religion, they usually found that they just hadn't understood. There was a religious element to that culture or society. The exceptions are so very rare that they really are an example of the exception proving the rule. They're like finding a blind person, or even they're rarer than that, to be honest, to find a culture, a nation, a tribe that has no religion. If you find a blind person, you do do not take the conclusion... You know, without being disrespectful here, but I don't know if there isn't even one in this room. If you find a blind person, you do not draw the conclusion that human beings could as easily be blind as see, and perhaps would be better to be blind. That's not the conclusion you draw from finding one blind person in a thousand. And, and when you grub through the world and find just one little race somewhere that don't seem to have a religion, you do not draw the conclusion that people desperately try to in our humanistic world and have done for a century now, that religion is a bad thing, that religion is a curse, that it's a product of society. The old Marxist view, which is a bit passe now, isn't it? That it's the, the, the sort of, it's, it's evil cunning priests created religion. You don't come to that conclusion. And even those who try and deal with it humanistically more, if you like, they say, well, religion started with worshipping sort of trees and rocks and plants. It doesn't answer the question, why on earth would people worship trees and rocks and plants? What would they do that for, for heaven's sake? Now, you can give me your humanistic explanations, but they don't solve the problem of religion. That people worship stuff. I don't know of blackbirds and frogs worshipping something. I mean, you know, why do we worship? Why do we worship? What is religion? Well, the Bible, again, has, gives the only reliable account of the origin of religion. It informs us that there is a God, one true living God and creator, and we are made to worship him. We are made to worship him. The Bible tells us God made men and women in his own image and gave them the capacity to understand and respond to his revelation of himself. God engendered in us a natural urge to seek communion with him, to glorify him, to commune with him. There really is a God-shaped gap. And it's in all of us. 
There's only one who's worthy of worship, but in our sin-sick, distorted way, we worship all sorts of things we shouldn't. But there's something in there that wants to worship and knows there's a creator and wants to connect with him. And in our sin and blinded state, it all comes out crooked. There's even in us a sort of moral sense of right and wrong. Now, that also gets twisted. But there is there, it is there. You can find the echoes of it throughout society. A desire to see justice done. These are little shadows, perhaps, of what they should be. But they reflect something in us that looks for God. He's put it there. He's put it there. An awareness of sin. An awareness we're not as we should be. A desire to put it right and get right with God. It's all part of the echoes of God in our own human spirit. Now, these elements in human beings point to God. He wants us to seek after him. He tells us we can find him. We can know him. So I want to quickly move on to something else briefly. The knowability of God. There is not only a God... He's not a blind force. He's not some sort of distant, weird thing. He is a God who is near to us. Nearer than your own, nearer than the person sitting next to you. God knows more about you than you know yourself. He's not a God only of far away, although he can cope with being far away because he's beyond time and space. But he is a God who's here, in it all. Indeed, the very creation we have is sustained by him. What we call laws of nature are not really laws. They're just God's ordinary way of doing things. And he can do in, think the same things in extraordinary ways. That's why we can have miracles. Miracles are just God doing the same thing in a less usual way. That is what a miracle is. There are ordinary ways of operating that we call the laws of nature. And God does things how he wants to do them. And sometimes he does them in extraordinary ways. And we call that a miracle. But it's all God, and it's all him working. And he can get the ends he wants to with the means he wants to. God, our creator. But he wants us to know him. We can know God. Stick that one up, thank you. I know it's, a, it's just a f- statement of fact. We can know God. It's an exciting, exciting truth. The Bible emphasizes that God has revealed himself in many, many ways. And it's probably some of them I've touched on. It's creation, it's moral experience, conscience. But in his word, the Bible, in history, the history particularly of his people, old and new covenant, and in Jesus Christ, his son, our saviour. But we can really know God. Not just facts about God. Just not, not just know that he exists. We can actually personally know him. We're going to go quite quickly, uh, um, Alan, through some of these scriptures. Let me flash them up on the screen for you, or rather Alan will. Jeremiah 9, look at this. This is what the Lord says, Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts, boast about this, that he understands and knows me. That's what God says. This is the thing to boast about, that you can understand and know me. You know, anybody in this room can understand and know God. Not fully, we'll touch that in a moment, but know truly something about God. Isn't that amazing? That he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. Let's just leave that for a moment. God's saying, I am a God, I've showed you something of my character and you can know me. That's what you need to be seeking of. That's what you need to boast about. That's what you need to delight in. 
Let's quickly look at another one. John 17, 3. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We can know him, the only true God. That's wonderful. Let's keep going. Hebrews 8, verse 11. No longer will a man teach his neighbour or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Now, that is a verse about the time you and I are living in, the new covenant. That's why it's quoted in that context. The thing that Jesus has opened up is this reality. You can all know the Lord. Hallelujah. From the least to the greatest. Isn't that great? I was so moved if I can put it this way, by the, by the baptisms last Sunday. What a lovely event that was. But what a range of people. And they've all come to know Jesus. They've all come to know the Lord. Young, old, different ranges of abilities and types. Isn't it wonderful? You can all know the Lord through Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Let's look at the next scripture. 1 John 5.20 We know also that the Son of God has come... And has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. Wow. And we are in him who is true, even in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So we have the wonderful privilege of not just knowing there is a God. That's good and important. Not just knowing facts about God. We can know God. Now, we can never fully know God. This is what we need to understand, the humility and clarity about this. Because he is infinite and we are finite. He is infinite, we are finite. You cannot ever fully exhaustively know everything about God. In fact, you can't know everything about even one aspect of God. If I talk about the love of God, you can truly know the love of God. But you cannot fully know the love of God. What you know is true, but it's not exhaustive. Because to do that, you would have to fully know everything else about God to get the full picture. And you would have to know everything there is to know about every aspect of God to fully understand one aspect of God. Are you with me? Don't worry if you're not. There won't be a test at the end. But that is true. So that is exciting. I don't have a problem with that at all. I think it's brilliant. All through eternity, I will never finish plumbing the depths of God. Because everything about God is almost bottomless to me, in the best sense. I will never get to the bottom and say, I've got that fully sussed. I know everything there is to know about God's wisdom, God's love, and the rest of God's attributes. I can know true things. I can enjoy them. But I can't fully, fully comprehend them. Because I'm not God. So it's going to be very exciting spending eternity with God. Isn't it? It's inexhaustible. Because he's God. Hallelujah. Let just a little couple of scriptures that just remind us of this. Psalm 145, verse 3. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. Whoa. You can't do it. Look at Romans 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. That's inspired stuff. Old and New Testament. That's where the people of God end up. When they really begin to touch this, they don't end up scratching their heads and saying, oh, 
because we're, we're not proud, we're humble, we're dis- delighted that God's like this. God is God. This is the godness of God. I can't get him all in a box, I can't suss it all out. I can just, I, I know true things about him, but I don't know everything about him. Hallelujah. He's a wonderful God. Let's look at a few more just scriptures. I love the scriptures. Isaiah 55, 9. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. It puts us in perspective. <laughs> just comes straight up. And you say, oh, okay, good point. Uh, and that, that's God. But he says he loves to dwell with him of a humble and contrite heart. See? God says, I will show myself to you. If you come as a humble and contrite heart, you'll get to know me. But don't think you're going to fully know me. <laughs> you can't. You feel this is a, 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 an awesome sort of word from God. It's not a, not a cold, it's just real. And he's saying, I, I will dwell with him of a, a humble and contrite heart. And then this beautiful verse from Job. I love this. He's talking about God's creation and wisdom and power. And these are but the outer fringe of his works. How faint the whisper we hear of him. Who then can understand the thunder of his power? Isn't that a beautiful verse? How faint the whisper we hear of him. That's not a grieving thing. That's not saying, oh, you know, this is not saying it's a bad thing. It's just saying it's a humble thing. You just catch the skirts of his garment. How f- it's a faint whisper. <laughs> the best you get is a whisper. Not because... Well, you think, well, I want more than the whisper. You sniveling little creator, creature, hang on a minute. You just want to be grateful for a whisper. We're talking about God, for goodness sake. And God has chosen to give you some whispers about himself. Thank you, Lord. And you can barely cope with the whispers, I tell you. You won't cope with the shouts from God. You can only cope with it. He says, we just, we hear this whisper of it. Ah, it's great. It's wonderful. And it's going to get better and better. And through eternity, it's going to get probably louder and louder if we're talking in whisper terms. But we're never fully going to comprehend it. Isn't it beautiful? It's God. It's a God who's God, but also a God we can know. The knowability of God. It's superb. I love it. I love our God. You know, we're never going to run out of things to know about God, our Creator, our Heavenly Father. We'll never stop discovering more and more of His excellencies and His greatness All through eternity. But actually it starts now. We can know God now. You can know God through Jesus Christ. By putting faith in Jesus and knowing him as your Saviour and Lord, like we talked about last week and we've talked already, touched on this morning. It's in some of these scriptures I've just read to you. You remember the one from, you don't need to flick back to Alan. Remember the one in John 17, 3. Now this is eternal life, that you may, that you may, sorry, Now, this is eternal life, that they may know you, because this is Jesus talking to his Father, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Also, 1 John 5, we know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. Through Jesus Christ, we can come to know God. But you know, the mechanics of it is wonderful. We actually have God with us, the Holy Spirit. It's as intimate as that. The Holy Spirit helps us to know God personally. We really do know God truly and personally. Those two words are very important. I keep saying it, but you've got to get it. We don't need to know God fully, but we can know him truly. In other words, what we know about him is true. 
Jesus has come to bring us the truth. And the truth sets us free. We know true things about him. Jesus opens them up to us. About his wisdom, his love, his power and many other things. His grace, his mercy, his holiness, his justice. But you never fully know him, but you do know him truly. And the Holy Spirit helps us grow in our knowledge of God. It's exciting. As a Christian, this is exciting stuff. Colossians 1 verse 10, which isn't on the screen, that tells us we can go on growing in the knowledge of God. Isn't that exciting? Isn't that something to keep, keep interested in? You can keep growing in your knowledge of God. For goodness sake, stop trying to grow in your knowledge of, you know, I don't know, carrots or whatever your thing is. Grow, I mean, I, I find if you like carrots, I hope to have an allotment one day. But you know, what I'm saying is we can get so, want to grow, you know, let's grow in our knowledge of God. We can. God wants us to. Won't completely exhaust it, but we can grow in it. But this specific work, and this is what we're going to end on really, these scriptures that are going to go up in a moment, is the work of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to put up a reading which I'm sort of going to read through with you. This is for us as believers to enjoy. Now, actually, if you're not a Christian, you can come and enjoy this as well. You can put faith in Jesus, and this can be true for you. But the reality is, when we become a Christian, the Holy Spirit brings us into a living link with God, and we begin to know more and more about God. Never fully knowing, but truly knowing more and more about God. Let's read these verses. 1 Corinthians 2. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. It's good, isn't it? But God has revealed it to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We've moved on to the next screen. In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. What a privilege. We not only know there is a God, which puts life in the right perspective, we don't think is the moss better than us. Not arrogant, we're not being cocky about moss. It's got its place. But, but you know, we're not struggling with that because we know God. We know Creator. We know there's a God. But it's more than that. We know God. What a privilege through Jesus Christ. And actually the Holy Spirit wants us to know more and more about God. We can grow in our knowledge of God. All of you, young and old, male and female, bright and not so bright. You know, whatever your background, whatever you think of yourself, think, well, I'm not very clever. Sounds very clever, John. You read Mr. Flu. You don't blow Mr. Flu. God will teach you through the Holy Spirit. You don't need to understand philosophical arguments. You just need to know God. It's not about that. What a privilege. We can commune with God. We can speak to him and he speaks to us. We can enjoy his presence. He wants us to enjoy his presence. He wants us to meet him and to know him. We can know some of the deep things of God. That's what it says. We don't know them all. We can know some of them. The Holy Spirit is within us to reveal us 
to us some of God's thoughts. Because I would like to share my thoughts with you. That we may understand what God has freely given us. Oh, thank you, Lord. (laughs) I want to understand what you've freely given me.